May be seated. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we're looking at verse 16. Once again this morning. Conspiracy theories have uh, been around for a while. Uh, they seem to be around every corner um, today. But they have been around for about 200 years in this current form that they're oftentimes shared. Back in 1831, New England religious leaders warned about the Illuminati's destructive plans. And ever since then, Americans have sought and found conspiracies that are typically associated with politics or religions. And, as Kevin DeYoung points out, bad news travels much faster than good news. So we must be careful to avoid deceit of every kind, intentional or not. On the other hand, many will scream conspiracy theories simply because a claim seems alarmist or outlandish. doesn't have to be a conspiracy theory. It could be race based upon truth, right? We do not... We do live in a a world of crazy ideas, and sometimes the most outlandish things are, in fact, true. Other times, the most outlandish things are promoted as truth without the evidence. And so many lies permeate this culture. There's really nothing, nothing new about them. But they are critical to see and recognize. Think about the, the, the lie regarding the origins of our existence. The lies surrounding gender identity today. The lies surrounding what contributes to the racial tension. Not a lie that there is racial tension. But oftentimes what perpetuates that racial tension is based upon a lie. Uh, Lies surrounding personhood when life begins. Uh, Lies about God and his existence and there not being any judgment, future judgment to face. No need for a savior. And in all these things, we see that the truth is being exchanged for a lie, as we read about in Romans 1, verses 24 through 25. Unfortunately, Christians are oftentimes too weak or easily shamed into silence or submission regarding some of these things. And we've seen the church on just about every one of these issues make compromising statements. And so, yes, it does have to do with the Ninth Commandment. The Ten Commandments are a summary of God's moral law. They are perpetually binding upon all of humanity. And although no one can say that they have kept any one of these commandments perfectly, the Ninth Commandment may be one of the most frequently broken commandments against our neighbor. And so before we read this verse, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding this important commandment heavenly father we thank you for your word we thank you for the moral law this summary that you've given us in the ten commandments 
in a culture that oftentimes belittles the need for these commandments, not even recognizing their own innate tendency to see and to operate according to these commands. Lord, we as believers need to be emboldened by this truth, emboldened to recognize the importance of the ninth commandment. And that might mean speaking the truth in love to those who vehemently disagree with us, whether it be politically, whether it be uh, in the way we educate our children, maybe even in the way we practice medicine, what it means to provide health care. Lord, these are questions that are all relevant to the ninth commandment. And so, Lord, help us to have wisdom and discernment in applying this principle to the way we live. Help us not to only think about those outside or to point our finger at others, but to see our own violations of this commandment and to be convicted by that. Lord, so give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear the truth. Soften our hearts that we would repent. And once again, comfort us by the truth of your gospel. That we would rest in the perfect work of Christ. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Read it with me. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, last week we considered the positive aspects of this command. Um, right? If we're not allowed to bear false witness against our neighbor, then we must be speaking truthfully to them and about them. And we should be about speaking truth. And so our primary point is there in your bulletin again. The main idea was the proclamation of the gospel is motivated by and grounded in the personification of the truth, which is Jesus Christ. He becomes the motivation and the grounding for our proclamation of the gospel. Now we see the negative aspect of that, which is really the way in which the commandment is written. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So I want to begin by looking at several of the examples of dishonesty. That's If you're writing in your outline, the first blank is examples of dishonesty. One of the first things that new parents realize is how quickly their children learn how to misbehave. And children do not need to be taught how to lie. Uh, they, they, know, they know this intuitively. And they also know that what they are doing is wrong. Uh, they, they, can, they have a, an expression on their face, as you, you've seen it in, in toddlers, right? This sly expression. They know what they're doing is wrong. And we might think it's cute, when they're really young, but there is truly something revealing about it. They must learn that there are consequences for their sinful misbehavior, or they will treat your laughter as a reward and keep doing it. So that, that then you're placed in this awkward predicament, right? You're sitting around the table and you, you, you don't want to recommend them to continue to do this, right? So you have to suppress your laughter, but it is kind of cute still, right? And, but they, you've got to at some point treat uh, or recognize that there are consequences for that sinful misbehavior. And of course, as they get older and the, the actions are more severe, more serious, it becomes easier to do that. 
But the motivation underneath the lie is an important factor to consider. Now, there's not a whole lot of thought, forethought, in the life of a, of a toddler, right, before they engage in some lie. But we do know that Satan is the father of lies, and that began in the garden. So Satan lied to Eve partly from malice and partly from pride. And we continue to do that today. Right? He was intending to bring harm upon the pinnacle of God's creation. That was the malicious component there. But it was also out of his own pride, his envy of God. He wanted to raise his own authority in the world. He wants people to hate God as much as he does. And so the father of lives is still at work. And he's still attacking the people of God. So there are certainly other factors such as fear and contempt that motivated the serpent and that motivate us to lie today. But regardless of the motivation, the consequences were utterly devastating. It led to the fall of humanity. So the consequences of this sin remain infinitely serious. And we shouldn't grow comfortable with its violation just because we see it taking place on a daily basis. We see everyone lying, well, it was just a little white lie. Or that we begin to say, the devil made me do it. That's actually a horrible admission that we've chosen the father of lies over the father of truth. The more comfortable we become with lying, the more it reveals who we are following. who Who we are being conformed to. On the other hand, by telling the truth, we reveal the work of the spirit in our hearts. And so one way we we lie is by prejudicing the truth. It's a language we find in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 145. Prejudicing the truth. We, We describe something, maybe that we actually said or did, but we present the information in the best possible light. We prejudice your understanding of what I'm talking about. And so that it allows us to look better in your eyes. Vice versa, if we want to give someone a bad impression of someone else, we present their actions in the worst possible light. We impute motives that may or may not be present. We even do this when we disagree with someone, right? We make assumptions about what they mean. And so rather than asking clarifying questions, we assume that we know exactly what their motives and intentions are. And we respond to them based upon that. If it's someone that we trust, then we are more willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. We assume we maybe misunderstood them. Or that they misspoke. But if it's someone we distrust, then we assume the worst. Again, the the Catechism question, 145, it gives a lengthy list of examples. We don't have time to get into them all, but examples of dishonesty from the courtroom to the living room and everywhere in between. We see the violation of this commandment everywhere. From the judge to the jury, from the plaintiff to the defendant, from the witnesses to the attorneys, the courtroom itself is a fog of uncertainty. Clients make considerable efforts to minimize any sense of personal wrongdoing and to maximize the sins of their adversary. 
witnesses desire to support their side, even if it means withholding certain details that they know to be true. Justices, tired of watching bad policy, release criminal uh, that, that ultimately leads to the release of criminals, may decide to issue increasingly harsher sentences for the same crime. We see that problem happening today. Or, or we see the corruption of the, of the judicial system, right, where people are looking to profit from the decisions that they make. You're, you're, you're buying a decision. Outside of the courtroom, the examples are also abundant. That the wicked are rewarded and the righteous are condemned. Good is called evil. Evil is called good. Truth may be concealed or left unspoken out of fear of the consequences. That can happen inside and outside the church. On the other hand, we might foolishly utter everything that's on our minds. That's also not helpful, even if it's true. And the Proverbs 29.11 calls that person a fool who utters everything that's on their minds. Or we speak the truth, but we speak it with malicious intent. We, we speak it in order to harm. Some twist the truth, providing new definitions of established terms in order to deceive And so we might assume the worst motives in others, which is a form of slander. We might build ourselves up while tearing others down in the way that we emphasize true details. In situations where we want to preserve our own name, we withhold details or we cast shade upon the truth. Maybe we dig up dirt on others in order to take the spotlight off of ourselves. We fabricate reports that are presented as true without properly vetting the evidence. We release true reports, or or when true reports are released, they're suppressed by those who don't want to hear that. Someone's fall into disgrace is celebrated. Scornful contempt is heaped upon some, while others receive fond admiration regardless of their actions. Now, I know some of you are thinking all of this starts, is, is just sounding like politics today. We see the violation of this commandment deeply ingrained in our political system. And there are many reasons to explain the growing political polarization in our nation. Uh, But one of the reasons it has developed is from a desire to have a common enemy. You can be united by a common enemy oftentimes to a stronger degree than you can from a, a a common goal. The truth is not so much the driving concern in that situation, but whether or not we have a piece of information that could damage the reputation of our opponent. And so regardless of whether or not it's actually true, we promote it. And that information is then shared and spread around. And as we know intuitively, and as I mentioned from Kevin DeYoung's quote earlier, Negative news spreads a lot faster than positive news. A juicy piece of gossip is going to spread further and faster than anything encouraging. And of course, we see this on both sides of the political aisle. 
So the greatest problem is not necessarily our political opponent, but the underlying need that is not being met by those who are willing to falsify the evidence or to promote their candidate at all costs. At what, what need is the polarization satisfying? There's not really a one-size-fits-all answer to this. Uh, we're all unique, but many of us are united by the same causes. Right? So do you recall the, the unity and the patriotism that we experienced in America following 9-11? Uh, again, that, that was bipartisan. Right? We were united as Americans following 9-11. What drew us together was a common enemy. Oftentimes, typically in politics, there's two camps. And so they're united around two common enemies. And that's not necessarily bad in and of itself, but we need to ensure that we are, that, that our own reasoning is based upon facts and not fiction. That the candidate we're supporting, we're not supporting them at all costs, that we're not unwilling to be critical of their own shortcomings. What makes a conspiracy theory so dangerous is not its ability to spread quickly, but its false content that quickly spreads something that's dishonest. All right, so only the gospel of Christ can satisfy our deepest need. We need to keep coming back to that, the gospel of Christ, not, not looking to politicians as our saviors. Right, Jesus suffered under every violation of the ninth commandment in order that we might stand on his record. And if we're trusting in him, then it was, it's, it's Christ who was tempted in every way that we are, yet he remains sinless. So when, we, when he redeemed us from the curse of the law, he not only removed the penalty of sin, but its power. And that doesn't mean we're going to never tell a lie or never shade the truth. But it does mean that we can participate in the truth, in truth-telling. Those of us who have been united to Christ have no need to demonize others who haven't. But we do honor them when we speak the truth to them. Even if it leads to negative consequences upon ourselves. But I don't want to end there. We started late, so just be aware we're going to go a little later. There are exceptions that we find in Scripture, exceptions to dishonesty. And that's your next section. We have examples of dishonesty and then exceptions to dishonesty. I think we have to consider these as well. An important distinction has to be made, right? The, the commandment implies an intent to harm. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's why we use the word against there. What if your intention is to preserve or protect life? Must we always tell the truth? So a number of Reformed theologians such as John Murray have seen the Ninth Commandment as a testimony to the sanctity of truth in a very general sense. On Murray's view, it's, it's never right to say anything that does not correspond with fact. 
lies are, are not simply untrue statements. Right, it seems that we need to provide some categories for mistakes, for parables, for fiction, for hyperbole, even innocent flattery. Uh, I think of the example when we might say to someone, oh, you're, you're far too kind. You go, oh, that's not true. I, I can't be too kind. Right? I mean, we don't do that. We don't correct them and say, you're telling a lie. Right? We, there's innocent flattery. There's intentions to build someone up where we're really emphasizing something that may be an exaggeration. Is that wrong? Should we say that that's a lie? That's breaking the ninth commandment. Again, I think there needs to be room in categories for these things. What about playing games? I know we got some board gamers in here who love to play a strategy game. If you're unwilling to be deceitful in a game, you probably haven't won. <laughs> or you're not playing very fun games, at least. <laughs> strategy games it oftentimes dictate deception. So John Frame, he argues that a lie is a word or act that intentionally deceives a neighbor in order to hurt them. He adds to this idea, this concept, and I think that's important to consider. It's not just the, the aspect of deceit, but it's this aspect added to harm. It's for the intent of harming. It's giving false witness against a neighbor. So the term neighbor does not refer to everyone in general, but to anyone that we find to be in need. That's the point of the Good Samaritan. And it's not that everyone on the road is a person in need of care. Sometimes we'll confront an enemy on the road. And we are to love our enemies, but love is not incompatible with the desire to bring God's judgment upon them. We need to maintain the good purposes of self-defense punishment and just war uh, to be able to defend our loved ones against an enemy who would like nothing more than to destroy their lives are we willing to defend them i think that has to be protected in our understanding of scripture there are many uh, there are many passages in scripture where misdirection is not condemned. And in fact, many times it's commended. So John Frame provides the following 16 examples, and we're not going to look at them in any detail, but if you want these references, I'll give you the, the notes later, or they'll be on the website. But the first one is the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 21, where they lie to Pharaoh. And they are commended for that. You have an example in Joshua 2 of Rahab lying to the soldiers as she's hiding the Hebrew spies. She also is commended for her actions in Hebrews 11.31 and James 2.25. You have examples in war where deceit in, uh, was used in the ambush of Ai in Joshua chapter 8. You have the example that we looked at in Judges chapter 4 with Jael 
and Sisera, deceitfully bringing in an enemy into her tent and then driving a tent peg into his head. She too is praised, commended for her actions. Same thing with the example of Ehud in Judges. Uh, Samuel misleads Saul in 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 5. It's never condemned. McCall deceives her father's troops in 1 Samuel 19. David's counsel to Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20, verse 6. David feigns madness in 1 Samuel 21, verse 13. You remember the episode where he's foaming at the mouth. He's acting mad before them so that they would show compassion upon him instead of killing him. And yet we know in the psalm that he wrote as a reflection upon that event that he was trusting in God's sovereignty. You have um, David lying to Achish in 1 Samuel 27.10. You have military deceit in 2 Samuel 5. Hushai counseling, uh, was counseled to lie to Absalom in 2 Samuel 15. Women deceive Absalom's men in 2 Samuel 17. God sends a lying spirit against Ahab in 1 Kings 22. Elisha misleads the Syrian troops in 2 Kings 6. Jeremiah lies to the princes in Jeremiah 38. And then God sends delusion in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 11. In all of these passages, there is deceit. That is described. And that deceit brings harm. But the harm comes to an enemy, not to a neighbor. And so Charles Hodge taught that we are not obligated to tell the truth in certain situations. And he gives the example of war. J.I. Packer recognizes that a distinction needs to be made to accommodate for things like war, Rahab, or even Corey Ten Boom, whose family lied about hiding Jews during World War II. One of many families who would fall into that category. Martin Luther said, therefore, it is improperly called a lie. He, doesn't, he wouldn't want to say that these are exceptions, right? It's improperly called a lie. Rather, it's a virtue. And remarkable prudence by which the fury of Satan is hindered and the honor, life, and interests of others are served as well. So he would commend the actions as well of Rahab, of Cory Tinboom, in that light. Meredith Klein taught an intrusion ethic where the ethics of end times differ from the ethics that God has given to us in the law and in Jesus' teaching. Now, he would be referring to the end times as all of this time frame after the ascension of Christ. But even there, right, that, so he recognizes the need for a distinction. Scripture, however, doesn't distinguish those two different ethics. It, it does appear that the Bible passages that we just listed that justify deception in certain cases all have to do with the promotion of justice against the wicked and especially against those who seek innocent life so maybe you're unsatisfied with this i'm kind of going back and forth there's no universal reformed position on this um what I've presented here, in fact, I think may lean toward the minority view. Attaching the intent to harm our neighbor to the definition. Uh, but J.I. Packer says, in such exceptional cases, as we have mentioned, all courses of action have something of evil 
in them and an outright lie like that of of Rahab may actually be the best way, the least evil, and the truest expression of love to all the parties involved. So that's how some people uh, kind of try to explain it. They say, well, it's, it might still be a lie, but it's, it's, it's a lesser evil. That's the dilemma we have even when we go and elect officials, right? The, choosing the lesser of two evils. That's, in a sense, always true. So Zacharias Ursinus, the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, points out that we may not do evil, that good may come. He points out that Rahab and others were commended for their reverence of God, not necessarily their deceitful actions. Others like J.V. Fesco follow that same line of reasoning. They see actions of the Hebrew midwives and Rahab as imperfect acts of faith. So again, they're commended for that faith, but it's not a perfect kind of faith. While scripture commends them for that reverence, for that faith, it does not commend every aspect of how their faith was manifested in those moments. Rahab can be commended for welcoming the Hebrew spies while saying nothing about her lying to the authorities. Personally, I see these arguments as conveniently skirting the issue. Um, what made Rahab's hospitality worthy of commendation was the risk that she took in lying to the authorities. Had it not involved a lie, she probably wouldn't have been remembered. The reason why we remember her is because she risked her life in order to save the Hebrew spies, and she was absolutely commended for it. She was rescued and brought into the covenant community because of her act of faith. So if you remove the risk and you remove the significance of her self-sacrificial actions. On the other side, you've got Michael Horton says, in other words, a lie, even in the interest of greater good, is always a sin, even though one might be required by one's conscience to lie in order to, for instance, save a neighbor's life. Here, a lie is still evil, but a lesser evil compared to murder. So ultimately, we could go back and forth. But the concluding example needs to point us to the gospel, right? Which is crucial. Jesus was willing to suffer the penalty of every violation of the ninth commandment on behalf of those who place their faith in him alone for their salvation. And it's only when we do that that we can stand on that perfect record of Jesus Christ. Yes, all of our actions are going to be tainted by sin, but Christ alone perfectly fulfilled every one of these commandments. And so the situations that we've listed as possible exceptions to dishonesty are extremely rare. These individuals were dealing with life and death matters. And there's no excuse for Christians to make lying habitual. And to point to those examples as, as, uh, as their reasoning for doing so. It is far more common to find ourselves lying in order to preserve ourselves. Like we saw in Peter's denial of Christ. However, when we understand how much Christ was willing to suffer for our good, then we can ask the Lord for the bold integrity to place the needs of our neighbor above our own. 
and by his spirit to give us a self-sacrificial love that will receive its full condemnation or commendation on the day of judgment. So let's ask the Lord for his help in doing so. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us a, a challenging topic. This is, is not simple to navigate, to understand what, it, what is proper and appropriate for the believer in every situation. Lord, we, we see some of the similar dilemmas even when we consider various political candidates that we might vote for. Now, they're not so black and white, so cut and dry. And yet we want to honor you in the way that we live our lives. We want to honor you in the way that we commend truth. And in the way that we put away falsehood and condemn it. But Lord, ultimately, we want to act in a self-sacrificial way. A way that puts the needs of others above our own. In a way that shows compassion for others. And sometimes the greatest expression of that compassion is not well received. To speak the truth to others may in fact feel like we're harming them or they may think that it's harmful. Or give us wisdom and discernment to, to not simply act upon our emotions, but to recognize the facts and the evidence. To not be presumptuous of the motives of others. To not work so hard to protect ourselves. Or to unite ourselves around a common enemy to the, to the point that we're willing to act deceitfully with the evidence about maybe various flaws in a system or in a person's uh, character. Lord, there's, there's so many elements of this commandment that relate to our present circumstances, and we need wisdom to navigate them. Lord, politics are important, but help us to not forsake your word, forsake the gospel truth in order to promote something that, that, that has such temporary and fleeting value. Lord, help us to look forward to that day where, where there will be no more deception where deceit is not even necessary in order to evade harm or to preserve and protect those who are being attacked. Lord, we live in a fallen world. We live in the, in the midst of much corruption. And so, Lord, give us wisdom to navigate this world in a way that glorifies you, that preserves and protects the truth, that is self-sacrificial, and that honors the lives of others around us. 
ultimately, Lord, point us back to the gospel that we might proclaim that boldly and truthfully, honestly, even to those who disdain it. Because it is true, Lord, we want to point others to that truth in love and to warn them of the consequences of refusing to believe. Lord, help us as we turn from here to the Lord's Supper. Help us to to see the significance of this. Even now, the, the, the ways in which we may have violated this commandment that we might confess freely to you and come in that assurance of pardon that we do not come and celebrate our union with Christ because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness we have found in him. That he is imputed to us. And that now when we come before you, we, we come as children to a father who hears us, who, can, who has rescued us, who has brought us out of our bondage to sin and brought us into a community in which we can love and support and care for one another. Lord, help us to do that this week, to not lose sight of those who are in need, those who are sick, those who need encouragement. Lord, help us to show compassion to them. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is found on page 453 in your Trinity Psalter hymnal. We'll sing Just As I Am. <laughs>